So we're going to grab our Bibles, and before you turn out of rote, because I know you're all good congregation members, you're ready to go to the book of Acts, you're ready to continue the series, I want us to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and I, I felt stirred, I felt convicted, I felt challenged this week from the Lord for us as a church, just to take a little pastoral moment as is needed sometimes, you know, we do find ourselves in a, a journey and in a season that is not really like, certainly not like any season I've been through, not like any season that many of us have been through. And there's moments where you've just got to take stock. You've got to take a moment to look around you. It's easy to feel a bit lost. It's easy to feel a bit confused and overwhelmed. And really my heart is to encourage us. There's some important things. And we've done this a few times throughout the last couple of years as things have kind of come up, as the Lord stirred us to, to really posture ourselves in certain directions. And really, that's my heart and encouragement this morning. And um, I'm hoping that this will be a moment that gives us that GPS recalibration, that helps us get our bearings, that enables us to posture ourselves in the midst of what we see around us and enables us to really not just survive, but to thrive in the midst of the season that we find ourselves in. I, I believe that God has things for us in every season of life, including the one, as challenging as it is for some of us, that we find ourselves in now. So I want to pray, and then I'm going to bring what I hope will be a real encouragement and then a real challenge or recalibration that I'm hoping will give us some focus and direction as we move forward. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us. And Lord, this is a season, and this is true in every season, but particularly, Lord, I'm so just aware of how much we need you. We need your grace. We need your presence. We need your wisdom. And I pray for each and every one of us this morning, Lord, as we are gathered together wherever it is that we are and this message finds us in whatever place and circumstance and situation this message finds us. Lord, I pray for a stirring of faith. I pray for a, a fresh infilling of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for a fresh fire of love and that hope that burns bright, Lord, to be ignited within our spirits this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd come and do what only you can do. And as we have so strongly proclaimed and sung and declared this morning, help us be a people that always keep our eyes upon you, our gaze and our affections towards you, leaning heavily upon the grace that you offer to us in each and every season. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done, I pray this morning, for the glory of your name, King Jesus, as we behold the beauty of who you are. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you suspected, as soon as I said Jeremiah 29, that we may be heading towards Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It is a very familiar verse. It is a verse that often finds its way onto fridge magnets and slogans and often taken out of context, but we'll leave that for now. But it's a wonderful verse, especially when you put the context in which we find this particular encouragement from the Lord. The verse says this in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It says, it's the Lord speaking, and he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. He's not suggesting this. He's not saying this with some sense of uncertainty. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans 
for welfare. Some translations say for good. The picture there is these are plans of tenderness. These are plans that declare the love and the kindness of God towards his people. Plans that are good for you because I love you because my heart is towards you. Not plans that are for evil. I have plans to give you a future and a hope. Now, it is a wonderful verse, and it works well on the fridge magnet, but I want us this morning to consider the context in which this verse is found because it brings an even greater depth. This verse was not proclaimed and declared by the Lord in the midst of a a happy season, in the midst of a a mountaintop experience when things were going wonderful for the people of God as they pursue Him and seek Him. Everything's rosy, everything's peachy, everything's just going the way that we hope it might. This particular declaration of the Lord is found in perhaps the darkest chapter in Israel, in God's people's history, perhaps the the deepest, darkest, most sorrowful moment in all of the Old Testament. You see, what has happened, and we read this in the context, just look for a moment at the context of the verse. For it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, we find ourselves in this scenario of people who'd been forcibly removed from their homeland. Nebuchadnezzar had invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. Talk about feeling lost. Talk about feeling discouraged and defeated. These people had been uprooted. Many had been separated. They'd seen people they love who had lost their lives. And there's no doubt that for them there would have been a sense of feeling forsaken by God. If we read the full context, it says they were led astray by false prophets. There was, you know, all of this narrative that was not of the Lord that was leading them astray. They'd rebelled repeatedly against God. It wasn't just circumstances coming against them. It was an intentional rebellion and walking away from the God that had made them and given them everything that they had. They found themselves in this broken mess of shame, discouragement, disappointment, fear, and uncertainty. How does God respond in the midst of what I would suggest, as I have already, was the darkest, most disappointing, most uncertain moment in all of the history of the people of God? He utters these words. I declare that I am the Lord who has plans for you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, for welfare, and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. See, there's some incredible realities to that particular promise in that circumstance. Number one, it's simply this. Even in the midst of despair, there is a promise that prevails. Even in the midst of confusion, when there's uncertainty, when you have no idea about anything. There is a promise that prevails. Even in the midst of our own depravity and the brokenness of sin and the choices that we have made intentionally to walk away from the Lord, even in that place, there is still a promise that prevails. In greatest darkness, in greatest sorrow, in the greatest shame you could ever find, His promise still prevails. He is that kind of God. And the reality for us is if His promise prevails there, if we can find it there, then we can find it anywhere. 
Number two, not only does his promise prevail, his purpose remains. You see, the Lord says, I've got plans that are are good, that are, are for your welfare. I care about you. I love for you. In the ESV, it says plans for a future and a hope. Some translations say plans to give you an expected end. And in some ways, that is a good translation. See, God is not giving his people here just a vague promise that things are going to get better. Like there, there, there will be things that will be better at some point. That in itself would still be an encouragement. But God is proclaiming this, that there is an appointed end for his people. That nothing will hinder them from reaching his appointed end. See, not only is he proclaiming in the midst of that place that his promise prevails, he's proclaiming that his purpose will remain, that his purpose is unshakable, that you couldn't thwart it even if you tried. And again, the second reality for us, if, if his purpose still prevails even there, even in the depths of despair and the darkness of sin and choices and the uncertainty and fear of where the people of God found themselves, then we too can be encouraged that his purpose prevails. He has a plan. He is at work accomplishing his purpose and plan in our day and our time as he is in every era and epoch of human history. His purpose remains and his promise prevails. You see, for them, this could have been a moment when it would have been easy to give in to fear, discouragement, disappointment, division. They lost everything. It would have been easy to start pointing the finger, wouldn't it? Well, this is all the false prophets. I mean, this this is their issue. They were prophesying these things that were were rubbish. This is all the king's fault. I mean, he should have known better. Whoever it is, This could have been a moment for them to really enter into a dark place. And so in the midst of that, the Lord gives them this remaining purpose and this prevailing promise, saying he is faithful, he is able, he is in control. What is it that that God wants them to grab a hold of? What is it that God wants us to grab a hold of in the midst of the season that we find ourselves? And it's simply this. There is a prevailing promise, and there is an enduring purpose. There is a bigger picture at play than just the circumstances we see around us. Now, God is not saying that all the other issues are not important. In fact, he says specifically to them, if you read the, the rest of Jeremiah 29, he says, you're going to be in captivity 70 years, so you know, here's my promise, but, but still get on with your lives. There's things that matter. Get married, have children, plant vineyards, find you know, a, a place to work and to live your time effectively. Care about the issues and affairs of the city around you. He's not saying there's no other issue that's important. This is the only thing. But he is saying in the midst of all of that, in the midst of everything that you're feeling and everything that you will encounter in this season of your life, there is a prevailing promise and there's a remaining purpose. That needs to be the thing that guides your life. The encouragement for us this morning is we need to, in this season, we need to rediscover his prevailing promise. We need to discover his remaining purpose. And that'll do two things for us. And this is really my heart this morning. If we anchor into that, it gives us a faith that clarifies and unifies clarifies and unifies. See, it makes clear what should be clear, and it unites us as his people around what it is that he is saying. 
not around the issues and all the other stuff that's happening. It clarifies, it makes clear, and it unifies us. Imagine how much of an encouragement that was for seven years in the midst of their shame and their rebellion and disappointment. Hey, but just remember, God is still with us. God's working this out. He's promised us that his promise is here. It remains, and his purpose will prevail regardless of what we are seeing. Imagine how much that clarified, how much it refocused them continually and how much it brought them together as God's people. He still cares for us. He still loves us. That's what we're running after. That's what we're pursuing. Brings them, as Adam said at the service, from distraction to devotion, from faith, away from fear to faith. See, we find ourselves, and that's the picture, and this is the season we find ourselves in. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not sure if you've you know, been watching the news lately, but there's a few things happening around about us. But I would suggest that the greater problem, even more so than this pandemic virus, is the, the pandemic of fear. This fear that's been weaponized by all sides. And it's not just in the, panic, uh, the pandemic. We've seen this for years. With this, this fear, fear of governments, fear of vaccines, fear of pandemics, fear of one another, fear of anybody who holds any different sort of perspective than we do. And the problem is this, when there's a climate and a culture of fear, this is where I'm going with our encouragement, this is our challenge, it easily does two things. Number one, it narrows our focus down. And number two, it turns us against each other. Two primary realities of a culture and environment of fear. The story I've used before, often used in in this kind of context, is the one and only time, and I'm saying that in faith, that I have and will ever go scuba diving. And this is a moment where I had some good friends and family members who loved it. They said, mate, you're going to love coming out there. We're going to do this great dive. It was down the south coast, just north of Ulladulla, not far from where we are here. And we'd done some training for a day. It was a weekend kind of scuba course, done all the swimming in the pools and everything was fine. We knew the stuff. We knew what was happening. So we went out on our first ever ocean dive and we headed out, not on a boat, but from the shore. And I was totally fine, um, enjoying the environment and the scenery and the, the vibe of scuba diving until the moment as we headed away from shore. And I forget what the depth is, but there's a certain term in scuba diving when you get past a certain point and you actually lose the sense of what is around you. And most people who love scuba diving think it's amazing. That's what we want to get to, this sort of suspended in free space. But, you know, where I was and down the south coast, if you've been scuba diving, it's not particularly spectacular. It certainly wasn't that day. It was gray skies. The water was murky. And you got down to that depth. And all I could see was blackness. There's blackness everywhere. And I'm envisioning I'm somewhere stuck in the depths of the ocean. I'm sure I'm at least 5,000 feet underwater. There's schools of, of hungry 50-foot sharks that are circling around, uh, you know, about to have lunch. And in that moment, I had a full-on panic attack. Like I just, all of a sudden, everything. I'd been thinking about fish and everything and good and 50-foot sharks, and all of a sudden, everything just reduces down to this one thing of, I'm going to die. This is it. This is the end of my life, and I need to do whatever I can to preserve my life and get out of here. I was not thinking about what I was having for dinner. I was thinking about what the sharks were about to have for dinner. I was not thinking about any other issue than the immediacy of the problem that I found myself in that had to be 
result. And fear does that. Fear takes us away from any other perspective. And it's not always rational. There was not much rational that was happening to me in that moment. But it completely reduced my perspective and my focus to the immediacy of the problem. Number two, fear turns us against one another. What was my response? I'd like to say I kind of you know, talked myself through it and faith arose in my heart. But it was nothing like that. I, I just knew that I had to get out of there. And so I grabbed the others. And it's always interesting having a conversation underwater for those who've been scuba diving. But I'm sure that I made it very clear that I was not doing well and I was getting out of there. There was various gestures. There was a few gestures returned back to me. But I was not thinking at that moment, you know, I wonder what other people are thinking. I, I, you know, I wonder if this is in there. I, I, you, you know what I was thinking? I've got to get back to shore. And there's a rule in scuba diving that you never leave your group behind. So I just let them know in... As, un, as, as uncertain a way as I could underwater, that I was heading back to shore, and I did. I just left, and I think they probably thought about leaving me out there in the midst of the ocean, but reluctantly, we cut the dive short. We headed back to shore and had a very, very uncomfortable van ride back to the scuba base. I can tell you I won no popularity contests at all that particular day and vowed since that moment never to enter the waters with a scuba tank on my back again. But fear, it narrows our focus, and by nature it turns us into this preserve and protect mode people where nothing else matters other than what we're feeling in the midst of that moment. Now, we find ourselves, and this is the application that I want us to, to grab a hold of that bigger picture of God's uh, enduring, His prevailing promise, His unfailing purpose. There is a climate and a culture of fear around us. There is. I saw this article. You might have seen it. It was uh, published actually this weekend in the papers. A journalist by the name of Joe Hildebrand, he works for the, the Daily Telegraph. And normally I would skim over his articles or not even read them at all. He's very left-leaning. But this particular one caught my attention. And the title of his article was this. It said, Welcome to the Two Australias. And the subtitle was, Hardline Fanatics are Creating Two Very Different Australias, the pure and the impure, the clean and the unclean, writes Joe Hildebrand. Now, as he develops this particular article, and I obviously won't read the whole thing, you can look it up if you're um, interested. He talks about the fact that we've become this divisive and divided society, and, and no longer is there really any kind of middle ground. And of course, he's talking about the culture that we find ourselves in with pandemics and lockdowns and you know, governmental control, etc., etc. And he refers to both the left and right, not really trying to call one side out more than the other. On the left, he said there's you know, these people promoting their rules and quoting from some governments who remain nameless for purposes of this going out in the public domain, who referred to those who don't obey the laws as traitors. And in one, one particular article, supposedly a government official called them sickening wretches because they would not obey the orders of the government. Statements that he suggests would have fitted better um, with Joe on the back of Joe Stalin's beer coaster, was the way he expressed that. And it's not just the left, the right is no better. Spreading things that are, are true and half true and lies and innuendos and theories that are not helping the environment at all. And here's his conclusion. He says, again summarizing as he finishes the article, these hardline fanatics are creating two Australias. It's verging, in his opinion, he says, on the language of genocide, the ultimate question being not whether we'll survive the pandemic. Pandemics will come and go. 
but whether there'll be a nation worth living in by the time we're through. That's his impression. You, think, you might think maybe he's a little bit extreme in what he's espousing. Maybe it's not quite that bad. But I would suggest there's some truth for us to recognize. We've got to pray for our nation. We are more than any time I can remember in my lifetime. We are divided by issues and opinions. There is a culture of fear. Now, I mention that not because I want to talk about the nation, but I want to bring this home. And as I said, this is something the Lord has personally challenged me in. Yes, we need to pray for the the nation. Yes, we do. Yes, there is a variety of opinions that are causing division. But it's not just in the world. It is also within the church. And again, what I'm not trying to say here is that these issues don't matter. We should not think about these issues. What I am saying is here's the place that we find ourselves in, in the church, in the church in general, that there are issues and there's various views. And in fact, if you get, we've got about half a dozen people, you get 10 people in a room today, if you can legally do that anywhere, and you're going to find that there's 20 different opinions, like there is passionate feeling on some of the issues that we face around all of the issues that we find ourselves facing at present. And I know in the church, I know that there is this thing, and I've seen it so strongly, that we want to think, well, we we have the right opinion here. This is the true Christian response, and everybody else who disagrees with us, well, they're clearly the ones who are either not real Christians, or they're really the ones that are not listening to the Lord. And I've had all sorts of articles passed on in videos, and a lot of them have a lot of good material in. There's very few that don't have some sort of an undertone. There's very few conversations I hear that don't have some kind of an undertone, whether we mean it or not. That truly, really, if you really were a Christian, you would hold a view on this particular issue. And I'm not talking about issues of doctrine and salvation. There are some issues of doctrine and salvation that we should go to the grave for, that we should hold on to with everything within us. I am talking about issues that are dividing us unnecessarily. Here is the simple truth. This is what makes you a real Christian. Are you ready? It's do you love the Lord Jesus with all your heart? Have you received the the offer of grace that he gives to you? That's what makes you a Christian. Do you believe in him and here's his name? And here's what matters to me most in this season. It's not what opinion you hold in the midst of the environment. It's have you sought the Lord? Have you searched the scriptures? Have you sought out sound advice from people you trust, not just from the internet and the Kool-Aid of modern media? If you have, if that's been your process, then I celebrate whatever position it is that you've arrived at in the current environment, and I embrace you wholeheartedly. You see, we are in danger of buying into, in the church, this divisive spirit. I've had more people come to me in this season personally, deeply grieved and wounded, not over the issues, but what people, what believers, what brothers and sisters in Christ have said to them in response to some of the issues that we find around us. And I want to be honest, I've felt that too. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself here. I've been caught up in that overwhelming need to be right. Well, clearly I have all the answers. I'm the pastor and I have the answers in the midst of this season. And then the Lord reminds me that most of the time I actually have 
very little idea about anything. I can pretend to be in control and have it all figured out, but ultimately only he does. I've had to keep myself, because in the midst of this season, like some of you, I'm sure, I I desperately wanted to to lay a hand on a few people. I have, in the name of Jesus. I've, I've felt passionately stirred and genuinely convicted by the Lord as he said, Andrew, you are not acting out of a spirit of love and humility. And I've had to repent myself. And I don't mind. If this sermon's just for me, I'll preach it to myself and pray that we're a better church as a result of what God's doing in my heart. But I think we need to examine our hearts. It is the master plan of the enemy that wants to see us divided over these issues. It's the great gift of God who speaks into a circumstance like this and says, get your eyes off all the stuff, grab a hold of my prevailing promise and my enduring purpose. Get a faith that clarifies and that unifies. See here, and I'm bringing this to a close. See, to me, this is the real tragedy potentially in the midst of this environment. It's not pandemic, it's not disease, it's not governmental control. It's simply that believers, that people who believe in Jesus would exhaust more energy into divisive bickering over how to best preserve the few years we have left on this planet rather than proclaiming with resounding joy the eternal message of salvation in Christ. Isn't that why we're here? Not to just save people from a disease, but to save them from sin, because that's what Christ came to offer. Not just human problems and the best human answers to those problems, but the eternal glorious message that Christ has come to save sinners. Here is the best advice that I can give us in the midst of this season. And the thing that we continually need to recalibrate our hearts towards is to spend our days seeking him spend our days trusting him spend our days loving him and pointing others towards him being faithful to what he says to us and let him take care of the rest we've got to move from distraction to devotion we've got to move from that divisive place of fear to that place again of faith a faith that clarifies and a faith that unites us together around His great and glorious purpose. Nothing is going to undermine His glorious plans for us in this hour than letting the enemy get a foothold in our hearts and causing us to be a fearful, divisive, divided people. Can we get the worship team back up? I want to just end this morning before we close in worship by just giving us a moment. So if you can, wherever you are, I know it's been hopefully, hopefully in some ways, greatly encouraging and at least partly challenging and convicting. That's really been my intention is to speak with a passionate heart that God is a God. He is in control. There is a prevailing promise that we can find now. There is an enduring purpose that we can grab a hold of that can cause us to move from any place of fear to faith, any place of division and distraction back to that place of 
devotion. That's what we need to be able to navigate this season well. That's what God is challenging my heart in right at this moment. And I have not got that all right all of the time. So if you can, wherever you find yourself, could you just give the moment, the Lord, a moment, just in the privacy of that moment, the quietness of your own home before we move on. And just say, Lord, as David prayed, Lord, show me how you see my heart. Would you show me if there's anything in me, there's any ways in which fear has grabbed a hold, the distractions set in and taken me off course, if there's been any way in which I've been a voice of division rather than of devotion and the declaration of the glorious gospel of God in the midst of this season. And then know that the grace of God is available. It's available for me. As God's been challenging my heart, saying, Andrew, you've got you've to adjust here. You've got to come back here. That we would be a people. That we would be a people in this hour who can be a voice of healing, who can be a voice of love, who can be a people that bring the glorious light of the gospel in an era and a time where it's more desperately needed than any other. So, Father, I want to pray for each and every one of us this morning. I pray that just in this moment now, through the power of your Spirit, would you show us? Show us the things in our lives. Show us the things in our attitudes. Show us the things that we've said or that we haven't said that have not been pleasing in your sight. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a moment of both grabbing a hold again, of looking away from the the problems to the promise. And Lord, stepping aside and laying aside those things that have caused division. Lord, we repent for the times that we've been an instrument. I repent for the time, the times, Lord, that I've said things and should have said things where I've been part of the problem and not the solution. And Lord, we pray that, that this would be a season of a clarifying and a unifying faith. Lord, bring us together around your purposes. I pray this would be a season, Lord, where you come breaking through just as this pandemic has spread, that the greatness of your love and your gospel message would spread from one corner of this nation to another. Lord, that you'd break down the barriers that are drawing us apart through the greatness of your love, that there'd be a spirit of humility and repentance. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for the churches. Lord, may we humble ourselves on our knees before you, recognizing our need. And may there be a great revival of your love and your power and your presence. And here we are, Lord, use us. Let that begin with us as with humble hearts, with a repentant attitude, we keep our eyes firmly fixed on you, allowing you to lead us, loving you, serving you, seeking you with every fiber of our being, with every breath that you give to us. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name.